Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 168th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we are bringing you the Sally House. This was suggested to us by listener Mitch Gidry. This place has a heck of a reputation when it comes to the paranormal. And we're looking forward to sharing the history and hauntings of this incredible house with all of you guys. Before we do that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Marco. Hello, Marco. Arnalyn. Hey, Arlen. Rosemond. Hi, Rosemond. Bella. Hello, Bella. Miranda. Hi, Miranda. Ruth. Hey, Ruth. And Cindy. Hi, Cindy. This place in Kansas is, there's definitely something going on there. You oh. ready to check it out, Denise? Absolutely. All right. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and access to exclusive bonus content like Haunted True Crime Bonus Cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to this moment in oddity. In Georgia, there is a mysterious rock wall that is part of Fort Mountain State Park. This wall zigzags for 885 feet and features stones from the area. It is clearly something not made by nature. Many theories have been postulated as to who is responsible for the rock wall. The most obvious one is that Hernando de Soto built a fort here in 1540 as protection from the Creek tribe, and these are the remnants. It is this theory that gives the state park its name, Fort Mountain. But historians have pointed out that de Soto was not even in the area for a month, certainly not long enough to build a fort. Another theory claims that a Welsh prince named Madoc Ab Awan Gwynedd fled his homeland after the death of his father and he came to the area in 1170. 
He arrived with a group of people and they built a fortification here. Apparently, they built fortifications in other places too, like DeSoto Falls, Alabama, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. The most interesting theory comes from a Cherokee tradition. They refer to a group who lived here and built the wall as Moon-Eyed People. The reason the tribe used that name was because these people supposedly had very poor eyesight, especially out in the light. They were small in stature with very pale skin. They sound very similar to people born with albinism. The Kuna people of Panama quite possibly could have been their ancestors. The Cherokee drove them out and said that a temple had been built near where the stone wall is today. Perhaps these were actually Welsh descendants of the prince and the people who came with him. We will never know, but the wall that is the only symbol of their presence certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. This Day in History On this day, December 7th in 1941, Pearl Harbor in Hawaii was bombed by the country of Japan, pulling America into World War II. Just before 8 a.m. that morning, 360 Japanese warplanes appear in the skies over the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor. The attack took the base by surprise, and the result was massive casualties and a critical blow to the naval fleet. The attack lasted a mere 90 minutes. Destroyed or heavily damaged were eight battleships, three destroyers, seven other ships, and 200 aircraft. On the ground, 1,200 people were injured and 2,400 were killed. Nearly half of the fatalities were due to the USS Arizona being hit in its forward magazine by a shell and exploding. It was left on the bottom of the harbor to serve as a memorial for those lost. President Roosevelt appeared the following day before a joint session of Congress and declared, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Both houses of Congress immediately voted unanimously, except for one representative from Montana, to go to war with Japan. Goes bump. Atchison, Kansas is famously known as the birthplace of Amelia Earhart. It was home to the Kansas tribe before settlement began when the territory opened in the mid-1850s. The Finney family were some early settlers to the town and prominent members of the family would live there all their lives. They built several homes and one of those came to be known as the Sally House. It gained notoriety in the 1990s when a couple named Deborah and Tony Pickman lived in the house. Hauntings were documented in the house at that time, and it has become a well-known haunted location to paranormal investigators. The stories that the Pickmans have shared about their former home are horrific and terrifying. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Sally House. Atchison, Kansas was founded at a precarious time in American history in 1854. The Civil War was to commence in the near future, and the country was already strongly divided along the lines of pro-slavery and anti-slavery. 
this small city would be an example of that great divide. The man for whom the city was named was Senator David Rice Atchison, and he was strongly in favor of slavery. His goal was to set the town up as a place open to slavery. He grabbed a bunch of friendly investors and convinced them to form the town with him. It was decided that the original site was not suitable in another location that was newly open to settlement and that happened to be rich in agricultural possibilities was chosen. There were 480 acres divided into 100 shares and each member of the town company received five of those shares. Two of the first businesses built were a hotel and a printing press. Soon the National Hotel and the Squatter Sovereign, a pro-slavery newspaper, were in business. The city was formally incorporated in 1855. Three years later, the forces for abolishing slavery took control of the city. When the Civil War broke out, Atchison had three militias that fought for the North, but the main concern for the eastern side of the state was protecting against invasion from Missouri. So many of you all are probably familiar with the mascot of the University of Kansas, the Jayhawk. But do you know what the Jayhawk references? The term has been shortened from Jayhawker. Jayhawking was stealing, and this was a tactic of guerrilla fighters in the state of Kansas. One of the famous Jayhawkers during the war was Charles Cleveland Metz, and Atchison was his headquarters with a blessing from the townspeople. He would regularly lead raids into Missouri to steal horses and then bring them back to Kansas to sell. He targeted pro-slavery farmers. He was finally stopped in 1862 when he was shot and killed. In 1866, Michael C. Finney came to town with his wife, Kate, and they bought a parcel of land. Michael had been a wharfmaster for steamboat traffic on the Missouri River. He started building a home on the property that was completed in 1871. The family supposedly lived in the basement while the house was being completed. Michael did not get to enjoy the home for long because he died on September 27, 1872, at 10 p.m. in the house. At the time, Kate was pregnant, and the couple already had two sons, James and Charles, and a daughter, Agnes. Eight months later, Edwin was born, but he would die before he was two years old. I always hate to hear that. In 1879, the Finney's son, James, built a house next to his parents' home, and then he left for Colorado to find his riches in Gunnison. He returned shortly thereafter, cursing the godforsaken place. Edgerton was not much better for James, so he deeded his house to his mother and left for St. Louis. Charles was a teenager at the time, and he found work with Dr. Dan Holland, first as a bookkeeper and then as an assistant in the office. Dr. Holland's influence over Charles led him to a decision to attend medical school. At the same time that he was working for the doctor, Charles was also ice skating in competitions, and he was quite good. He and a young lady named Florence Guerrier won a gold medal in couple skating in 1883. No one knows why, but Charles fell out of favor, and by 1885, a local paper announced that the next skating competition was open to all gentlemen except Charlie Finney. Can you imagine the newspaper singling you out? Here's the next skating competition, but you over there, you are not invited. I can't even imagine a newspaper. I know it's a small town, but still... Yeah, it's that small town, I guess, bias, who knows? Charles loved to skate, so he solved the problem by dressing as a woman and skating as Miss Colby from Baltimore. And he was so graceful that nobody knew he was a male. And now we have Miss Colby from Baltimore. She's a little big in the shoulders, but... (laughs) Maybe she was from good stock. Yeah, I guess. Charles went to St. Louis and attended Beaumont Hospital Medical College, where he received his MD in 1894. He returned to Atchison and opened a practice in the Martin Building on 5th and Commercial. 
1899, his brother James would have a stroke and spend eight months in the hospital before passing away. His house was deeded to a woman named Joanna Barnes, who had recently left a mental institution. She was divorced with three children and had been admitted to the institution on the orders of a judge because she was violently insane. That's kind of scary when you had a judge say, you are not only insane, you're violently insane. And so leads one to think, how the heck did his home get deeded to her? I don't know, and it's certainly not the kind of neighbor that I'm sure his mother wanted to have. But by 1906, James's house was back in the family when Joanna deeded it to his sister, Agnes Finney. A year prior, Charles had married Louise Zeibold, and they built a home on the other side of his mother's house. So now, all the surviving Finneys are living in a row next to each other. The house that would become known as Sally House was the one built by James and now owned by Agnes. Look, it's a row of Finneys. Agnes married a man named William True in 1913. Their wedded bliss did not last long as he suffered a stroke three years later. Agnes cared for him the best she could, but within two years he had passed away. She decided to continue living in the house, and she did until the day she died in the house on November 28, 1939. She turned the home into a boarding house to help with expenses. Charles held on to the house, but when he died in 1947, it was decided to rent the house out. The first family to move in was the Mize family. They did not stay long, and there are no clear records of who lived in the house for the next 10 years. Of course, this makes trying to figure out the origins of hauntings difficult because up until this point, we really didn't have anything that could cause the kind of haunting that has been reported here. There have been a few family member deaths, but nothing like murder or suicide. There was Joanna, who had been declared violently insane, whom had lived in the house. So I don't know if it's something connected to her, but as we get into talking about the hauntings, we always, of course, like to look at the history to figure out why these hauntings are going on. And I really don't see a reason for us to be having a haunting here, much less something that's not pleasant in at all. The next documented owner was Ethel Anderson. She moved into the house in 1958 and she lived there until 1990. So she was there for quite a while. Yes, she was. 32 years. Apparently, I mean, if you live in a home for 32 years, doesn't seem like she was having any problems living there. And she didn't make any records or say anything about having any issues. But the next people to move in are going to be Tony and Deborah Pickman. And they moved into Sally House on December 31st, 1992. They were a young couple just starting out. and Deborah was pregnant with their first child. They both felt that the house was perfect for them because it was the perfect size with three bedrooms and a large yard. There was a basement with one room and it was unfinished. Beyond the furnace was what appeared to be a crawl space behind a tarp with large dirt mounds. Tony was a native to Atchison and looked forward to bringing up his family in his hometown. The couple had no idea that the quaint home they had just bought was going to become a nightmare. It's kind of interesting because when we were just describing the crawl space, we actually had in the house that I lived in in Colorado, there is a crawl space and it's all dirt under there. So it's not like a finished crawl space. And so I could see it being kind of mounded, too, because we'd go in there sometimes. Our friends across the street, I remember it was the one thing that creeped me out over in their basement. They had one of those little, it was like a pocket door almost, but it was really big. And you would open that up and you'd look in there and it was just dirt. And I thought that was the weirdest thing because we did not have that in our basement. Yeah, no, in our basement in Colorado, we had the exact same thing. Yeah, I don't know if our our house was just not built with a crawl space or because we'd finished off the basement. So I don't know if it had been there before, but I don't think it had. So it was just weird that we didn't have that. But I've heard people say that. That to me is the creepiest thing. (laughs) 
Well, and it is weird because the woman who lived there for the 32 years, you wonder if Ethel was into some stuff because isn't it funny that she seemed to have no issues, but yet the next family that lived there was going to be pretty much terrorized. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a, a woman with the name Ethel, you just don't see her like dancing around the fire and conjuring Satan or anything. So I don't know. Except for it's always those kind of, no offense to any librarians, but it's always those librarian types that have this like secret life somewhere. <laughs> Great. We're starting rumors about Ethel. Oh, well, it's what we do. At first, Deborah said that they didn't notice anything unusual because there were boxes everywhere. But after they were unpacked, strange things started happening. Their dog was good-natured, but anytime he was near the nursery, he would bark ferociously. The cat started getting into the act as well, and they sat and watched something unseen flying around the ceiling of the house. Their eyes would dart back and forth as though following something unseen. Then the timers for the stove and microwave would go off at odd times. They had not been set by either Tony or Deborah. The lights in the family room would dim themselves at night. This was a concern for the Pickmans because the switch was across the room, so it could not be either of them messing with the lights. Also, the light switch was not of the dimmer variety. So it does make it a little strange that the lights are dimming themselves when you don't have the possibility of that happening? I would say so. So they just assumed they had bad wiring. It was an old house after all. But an electrician could find no problems with the wiring, and this was backed up by the fact that equipment like the stereo and television were on the same circuit, and they were having no issues with either of them. So you're thinking if the lights are dimming, you'd get the sound dimming on the stereo a little bit, going soft and loud. That wasn't happening. The TV wasn't turning itself off or anything because of a bad wiring yeah. job or something. Or like the static from being having a short or something. Next, they started feeling cold spots in the house. These were usually near the stairs. Electronic musical toys would turn themselves on, and sometimes they made noises that were not supposed to come out of the toys. You know, kind of like maybe some whispers, voices, and some of those voices sounded like distant voices that were trying to communicate. That would completely freak me out. Yeah, I, I can only imagine if you have a little toy that talks and it sounds like it's not coming from right there, but it's in the distance or muffled or mumbling as if it's trying to come through but not having any luck. The phone had issues with disturbances, and several times Deborah claimed that she would just end the call because the phone would disconnect so many times during a conversation. None of these issues are cause for too much concern. They're more annoying than anything, obviously. And then they brought their newborn home, and things are going to change just a little bit. As new parents, the Pickmans thought that it was normal that their baby woke them up constantly. Sometimes it would happen right after a changing or feeding when they thought he was asleep. Deborah was outside talking to their neighbor named Carol one day, and Carol asked, as an aside, if there was a reason they had left the light on in the nursery all night long. Deborah had told her that they didn't leave the light on in the nursery, and Carol said that her husband could see it at all hours of the night. Deborah suggested that perhaps they were just seeing the light in the hallway, but Carol was emphatic that the light was on in the nursery. This made Tony and Deborah wonder if something had actually been waking up their baby in the night. Now, you got these two young people, this is their first baby, and it's waking them up all the time. So you, they're not getting any sleep at all, which is not good for your marriage, especially when you're young, and it's just not good for you health-wise either. So Deborah's sister Karen said that she'd come and help them out for a little bit. So she, what she would do is at night, she would take care of the feedings and the changing so that they could sleep through the night and get the rest that they needed. 
She'd been there for about a week when an unforgettable, terrifying event occurred. It was July in 1993. The group had been at Tony's parents' house for the day visiting. They got home that night and Tony went upstairs to use the bathroom. He comes down and he looks at his wife, Deborah, and he says, you know, I was looking in the nursery and I'm just wondering why you did that with the stuffed animals. And Deborah looks at him and she's like, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything with any stuffed animals in there other than, I mean, they're put them up on the shelf where they belong. So he says, well, all of the stuffed animals are down on the floor and they're in a circle And the way they're formed is the backs of the stuffed animals are to each other so that they're facing outward. So I think it's like a tight circle. It's not a big circle, but it's not like chance that they just ended up that way. So the whole group, there's Deborah, her sister, Karen and Tony go upstairs to look at this. And Deborah couldn't believe what she'd seen because she knows that she'd put all the animals where they belonged. There was a teddy bear that had been in a wicker chair A few of them had been in the crib. There were some that were on a shelf. And they had this small musical cat that they kept on the baby's changing table, probably to entertain him, you know, while he was getting changed. Deborah was just stunned to see all of the animals on the floor. And because they were arranged in this way, it just made her blood run cold. Of course, not knowing what it was, they just tried to play that off as a prank. Deborah remembered that earlier that day, Tony's sister had confessed that at one time she'd let herself into the house to see if the nursery had been finished, and she'd felt guilty about coming in when they weren't home, so she wanted to tell the couple. So they were thinking perhaps Tony's brother or someone else had just let themselves in and had done this for fun. They checked all the animals for magnets, maybe the cats had knocked them over, and they tried to find a logical explanation, but they couldn't find one. They verified that no one had visited the house unannounced. Deborah even called Jeannie, and when she explained how they'd found the animals, Jeannie told her that she'd felt really odd inside the house and that she'd even told her husband about her unease when she was in the nursery. Jeannie is Tony's sister, and so when she was in the house, she just kind of had this weird feeling. So when Deborah calls her to ask if she had come over to the house and done something with the animals, Jeannie was like, well, since you're mentioning that, I'm going to tell you that I felt kind of weird when I was there. So obviously, they're beginning to wonder if maybe there's a ghost in the house. So they go back downstairs. And as they get to the bottom of the stairs, Karen looks back up the stairs and she shouts, "Uh, the nursery light is back on. And she knows that she watched Tony turn it off. So they go back up the stairs to see what's going on. And when they get back up to the nursery, they see that there's this big stuffed bear laying on his back in the middle of the floor. Now, they had put all the animals back where they belonged. So how did this big stuffed bear end up in the middle of the floor? And he was one that they would put in the wicker chair. So it's not like he was on a shelf that was nearby and he'd fallen down off the shelf. He would have had to come out of the chair somehow. So now they're thinking, and this is probably what you and I would think, Denise, if you see that you've got the animals all arranged, it had to have been done by somebody. Now you have a bear that is in the middle of the floor when you've put everything back, what is your initial thought? That there's somebody in the house and I need to go get my gun, my sword, and everything else. (laughs) That's exactly what I would be thinking. I would be really freaking out even more than having the ghost in the house is there is somebody in this house that does not belong here hiding. Right, an intruder or something. Exactly. So that's what they're thinking. So they decide they better check the entire second floor, which they do, and they don't find anybody or anything. So Deborah's thinking to herself, well, 
if this is a ghost, hopefully it's a child ghost and that's why it's messing with the toys and it's just trying to play. They decide to go downstairs and watch TV to help calm their nerves. Now, I don't know about you, Denise, but I don't know that TV would calm my nerves at this point. I think I would just want to leave. But they don't want to leave. They don't want to go back to the in-laws' house. They're, they decide that they're just going to go ahead and stay at the house, watch TV. Well, nature calls and Deborah needs to go back upstairs to go to the bathroom. So she announces, I need to go to the bathroom for two reasons. Number one, she doesn't want to go by herself. And number two, she wants to make sure that somebody does come with her so that they can see that she's not the prankster, that she's not trying to pull their leg or do anything like that. So Karen and Tony say, okay, we'll go over and we'll just wait at the bottom of the stairs for you. So Deborah goes upstairs and glances into the nursery on her way to the bathroom. And what she saw caused her to actually curse out loud. The bear was on the floor again. Now they had no doubt that something supernatural was occurring. And they started wondering if they maybe should leave and go back to their in-laws house, but again decided to stay. They all slept in the master bedroom together and had no more trouble that night. The next day, Tony's brother Greg came on over to take pictures and he called out to whatever and asked if it wanted its pictures taken. So now we're going to have him coming over and doing a little bit of spirit tempting. (laughs) Never a good idea, Denise. Never. A bear sitting next to the TV turned around before their eyes and they all screamed. They decided that they should leave. And maybe not tempt the spirits asking if it wants its picture taken. Well, they asked and he turned and said, I guess, yes. But anyway, um, as they were packing, Tony was attacked. Something scratched him across his back and Deborah took pictures of the three scratch marks. And there we have every time we talk about somebody getting scratched, it seems like it's always those three scratch marks. The number three, as we've discussed on the show before, if this is happening in regards to possibly a demonic attack, they think that it is a way of basically mocking the Trinity The couple decided to call a psychic named Barbara Connor for help, and I think Tony had gotten her name from a guy he worked with. So Barbara comes into the house, she meets with the couple, and she hangs out for about 90 minutes. She starts communicating with a spirit that she claimed to be a little girl around the age of seven, and the little girl said that her name was Sally, which is where the house is getting its name from. During the session, they took pictures, and Tony's brother ran the video camera. Sally told Barbara that she didn't like Deborah that she thought she was bossy and had too many rules. And the reason she said this is because Deborah had started walking around the house and she figured she had this ghost and particularly a child ghost, you know, leave the baby alone, stop scratching Tony, trying to lay down some rules. And obviously Sally did not like that. But Barbara told Deborah to continue doing that and to remind Sally of those rules and to be firm with her since they're assuming that she is a child. And they thought, well, maybe if we give Sally some of her own toys that she could keep as her own, she would stop messing around with the baby and messing with the baby's toys and and scratching. So what they did is they wrapped a new baby doll for her to see if she could unwrap the present. And according to them, it did take several months, but she finally got it unwrapped. I like to call myself an open-minded skeptic, and I really find that hard to believe. But I have a feeling it was one of the cats, but... Yeah, I don't know. I just, I'm thinking if a ghost can actually unwrap a gift, it's not going to take it months to do it. And I don't know that one. I, I, to me, that's just, I have a really hard time with that one. I'm very skeptical of that. Tony also claimed that he saw Sally as an apparition and sketched her. 
Now, as we've discussed many times, Denise, you and I are skeptical anytime we're talking about child ghosts. So the fact that he saw an apparition that looked like a little girl, was it something mimicking a little girl or was it actually this little girl's apparition? Who knows? The Pigments came to think of Sally as something like a protective spirit, but they soon realized she was not the only spirit in the house and they believed that the other entities there were evil. The attacks were continuing on Tony and on any investigators who they brought in to investigate the house. They eventually moved from that house, but they wrote a book about their experience 20 years later and continued to give talks and interviews about their experiences there. The house has been investigated by numerous paranormal investigators. The television show sightings featured the location in the 90s. Investigations have resulted in countless EVPs and strange pictures. One investigator claimed to pick up four voices on an EVP that were not anyone in his group. Another person who went into the house claimed to feel unseen adult male hands pushing him forward and unseen child hands pulling him back. And all the top shows have been there from Ghost Hunters to Ghost Adventures. There's been some some others. Pretty much all of the main ones out there have featured the Sally House at some point. Some of them have been a little bit more truthful with the experiences than others. Deborah started a website just because she wanted to get the real story out there because she just felt like a lot of these shows were playing a little loose with the facts. So she started a website to try to bring out some of that stuff. Other than that website, I found another website that I believe is the official website for tours, which is actually hosted by the Chamber of Commerce for Atchison. When I found it, I was like, I looked up at the top at the website address and I went, really? That's weird. I would have thought that it was, you know, just its own website, you know, Tour Atchison or Ghost Tours Atchison or something like that or Sally House, something And so to see that it was actually the city of Atchison putting it out there, I thought, well, that's interesting. So this brings in a lot of revenue for them. And so I think that's why they really play up to the haunting of the Sally House. That's like a main attraction for them. And for that reason, when I'm looking at this official website for the tours, I see that it actually has a story about Sally on it. But nowhere have I seen any proof that this is anything other than a legend or something that they made up. Or I don't know, maybe the psychic told them that this is what had happened. (laughs) When it's a psychic telling you the story, it's a little dubious because especially if you don't have anything to back that up. You don't know that any of that stuff that she said is true because nowhere in here do we see anything that has told us that a little girl named Sally has lived in this house. There's nowhere in the newspaper that has told us that a little girl named Sally died in this house. A key thing here is, as we were talking about these houses, from what I've seen, there were three houses owned by the Finney family, all there in a row next to each other. And that this house, that Sally's house, Dr. Charles Finney never lived in it, nor did he ever have a medical office in it. His medical office was in the downtown area. Even though it's a small town, it was down there somewhere. He didn't have a hospital at his home. As far as I know, he didn't have a medical office in his home. This is verbatim the account that they have on their website. Originally built at the turn of the century, this house became the residence of an Atchison physician. The front served as office space and examination rooms while the doctor and his family lived upstairs. One day, a frantic mother arrived carrying her six-year-old daughter, Sally. The child had collapsed from severe abdominal pain. 
The doctor diagnosed appendicitis and knew there was no time to delay surgery. Believing the appendix would soon burst, the doctor began cutting Sally before the anesthesia took full effect. Sally's scream suddenly stopped and she grew pale and limp. She died on the operating table. Her last memories were of a man whom she believed was torturing her. Reports of Sally's haunting grew even more ominous in 1993 when the house was rented to a young couple. Their dog seemed to growl at nothing, especially near the upstairs nursery. Things began to take a violent turn, however. Fires broke out in the house and a series of sinister attacks on the husband began. The operating area would become cold. Objects would visibly move when the young man drew near. He could feel scratches upon his chest or abdomen. But never did the ghost attack the wife or baby. So I have no idea where the Chamber of Commerce got this tale from. Because this house did not become the residence of an Atchison physician. It was Agnes's house. And she had it as a boarding house. And he never did any doctoring in his home that I know of. He rented another building for that. So hmm. I have no idea where this story came from. It's things that make you say, hmm. And just Dr. Charles Finney, in order for this story to be true, I mean, talk about malpractice. Can you imagine operating on somebody before the anesthesia has taken hold? I know we're in an emergency situation here, but really? Well, and once you heard a scream to continue operating? Yeah, so I, to me, first of all, this this makes Dr. Charles Finney look like a bad doctor, and he was not. As far as I know, the city thought he was great. This is an important family to the city. They were honored to have them there. They didn't want him skating in any of the competitions, but I don't think they minded him being a doctor. And there was a fight or something that he'd gotten into, but, you know, people get into kerfuffles every so often. But I just can't see this, this story being true. It makes sense if you want to believe that there is this little Sally haunting the place, and that would be a reason why she would be haunting it. Yeah, I'm starting with all of the research. I'm leaning more towards a trickster that's haunting the place. I am too. But the Sally house does have a very detailed haunting account. Is this just the product of overactive imaginations? Perhaps a story to sell books. Are there really several entities in this cute little turn-of-the-century house? Is the Sally house haunted? That is for you to decide. You know, I, I hate to be so skeptical about stuff. With the Amityville Horror, there are people who think that that was just a fraud, that nothing actually ever haunted that house. It did have a horrible history, obviously, but there is no proof that there was actually any hauntings going on there from what we know other than the Warren's words and the people who had lived there saying that it had happened. But people have lived in the house since and never had any issues. They've changed the outside of the house to get people to stop coming there because that was more of a nuisance to them. So it makes you look at something like the Sally house and go, mm, are people getting fame off of this and, and that's why? I don't know. I don't know. I've heard all kinds of stuff about this house and I believe probably many years ago, I think I've heard them both interviewed about it, but I just have a hard time believing that this place is so incredibly haunted this way, but only at the time that they were living in it and now ever since when people go in to investigate. And always I wonder when you have a lot of investigations going on, are they bringing things there with them? Are they conjuring things with what they're doing? Are they opening portals, inviting things? You just wonder if it's the actual investigations that are causing the problems. Okay, Diane, so now I can give little Miss Ethel a break maybe and let her go back to her nice little life. And maybe it was actually the 
owners that brought something in with them. Oh, that's a possibility. Maybe there was something that had attached to them and it had nothing to do with the house because I believe they still have issues with hauntings where they're living now, I think. Hmm. I'm not for sure, but I think I'd read somewhere that they still had things that they felt were haunting them. So it does make me wonder if they're the ones who are haunted, not really the house. Now, you can tour the Sally house. There are seasonal self-guided tours. They run $10. And then there are guided tours which run $100 for a group up to 10 people. They also do overnight stays, and that's $100 per person. And I think you can have up to four people in there. It's not a really big house. so. And I do have a link in the show notes for where you can get more information on that. It just blows my mind that the Chamber of Commerce is the one advertising the uh, overnight ghost investigations. Hey, good money. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about the USS Hornet. This is one of the most haunted warships in the American Naval Fleet. And we are going to be joined by a woman who is a docent on that aircraft carrier. And she helps with the overnights that they have there and the different ghost tours. And and has a lot of great knowledge and a lot of great stories. Exactly. As a matter of fact, we just got done interviewing her, so... It's a very fun and informative and lots of experiences to share with you guys. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. I'd like to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And Ruth did send us an email. She said, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months and finally decided to set up a monthly donation. I enjoy your easygoing banter and learning about haunted places in history. I hope you're on the air for a long time. I wanted to share a quick story about my spirit dog, Sophie. A week after she passed at a ripe old age of 15, I was in a pet shop looking for something for the new puppy I'd adopted from the shelter. My heart was hurting, but life goes on, right? I had to ask a young man to help locate something, and as I was chatting about the new pup, I felt something bump the back of my knees. I thought it was someone's dog saying hello or a child. I was in the middle of the aisle, leaning on the shopping cart, so I was sure I hadn't backed into anything. I turned to find an item about 12 inches in diameter, weighing about 6 pounds and wrapped in sticky saran wrap type film on the floor directly behind me. I picked the item up to find a memorial stone stating, in memory of a faithful friend and companion. The rest of the memorials were on the bottom shelf a couple feet from me and a good 6 inches lower than my knees. I told the young man, well, I guess I'm supposed to buy this. His eyes were popping out of his head as he had seen the stone lift off the shelf. I told him not to worry. If Sophie was haunting me, you couldn't ask for a better ghost. A week or so later, I had a lucid dream where Sophie came to me and told me I had to let her go. Get over it were her exact words. She always was a bossy dog. Thanks for your time. And if you ever around Santa Fe, New Mexico, I'd love to meet you. I thought that was a really cool story. Very cool. I really liked that one. And the fact that the kid who worked in the pet store saw it pick itself up and hit her in the back of the legs. <laughs> I don't know how he was still standing there. I would have been like, see ya. <laughs> Bye-bye. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Kathleen Thiel and Ruth Schulte. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. 
We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.